Yesterday, during my devotional time, I was spending time in God's Word, and I was journaling, and I just, I was recognizing how often when people would cry out to God, His response to them would be to remind them what He's done, to remind them who He is, because in our circumstances, we don't always see Him, and we don't always feel Him, because His ways are not our ways. And so he comes and he says, but remember what I've done. Remember who I am. I am the God who set my people free. I am the God that split the sea so that they could walk through. I am the God that knocked down the walls of an entire city. I am the God of resurrection. I am the God that turned the mind and the heart of kings in order for my people to return home. Remember who I am because I am the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So over our circumstances, over the burdens that we came in here with, where we don't see God or we don't feel him, we remember who he is and what he's done, and then we claim it over our lives. So God, we come before you in this moment, and we choose to remember who you are. And we choose to believe that who you are is true over my life and my circumstances. So please, God, move. Open our eyes to see where you are moving. And this morning as we come and we press in to, to knowing your son, Jesus, more. To know him in truth, in fullness, so that we can then reflect him to the world. Would you meet us this morning? Open our minds, open our hearts to come to know and understand and embrace Jesus in a deeper way. And we pray these things in the all-powerful, all-capable name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Um, has anybody here heard of the Enneagram? Oh, some, a big fan. <laughs> um, the Enneagram is like a personality test. There's a lot of different personality tests out there. Uh, and this is one that it seems like a lot of people are, have been talking about. There's a lot of books out there, a lot of podcasts. And I find these things fascinating because I think it's so powerful to learn about ourselves, how we're wired and why we do the things we do. And it has the power to help in our relationships as we learn about our spouse or our friends or our coworkers, because God is so creative and dynamic that he makes us all different. And we can either butt heads with one another or we can, we can come to value one another. And so I just, I really love these things. So I started kind of reading up on this Enneagram and evidently it's been around for thousands of years. Like, monasteries have used this as a way to help people on their spiritual journey. So it's been super interesting to kind of read up on. But this specific one, they say, you're really not supposed to take a test. You kind of just have to read about it. And as you go, you'll discover there's these nine different numbers that have different personalities, and you find what your number is. And so I'm reading up on this, and I'm, I'm getting frustrated because there are two numbers that both kind of feel true of me. And everything I'm reading says you can't be two. You can only be one. And I was feeling frustrated because I'm like, but that's true of me 
and this is true of me. So it felt like I was having to kind of deny a part of myself, as though there was a part of me that, that really wasn't true. And I had to figure out which one that was. And so it's been frustrating. I honestly, I'm not entirely sure which one I am. But I think why it frustrated me is because as helpful as these tools are, they also can have a tendency to sort of box us in, to kind of use it as a crutch to say, well, this is who I am, so I don't have to be that. So if somebody's personality or behavioral tendencies is just naturally more of a peacekeeper, then they can kind of use it as an excuse to never engage in conflict. Or if somebody's an introvert, they can just kind of play that card and never actually press into relationship. And overall, it feeds this narrative that is taking place in our world today, which is this sort of either-or mentality. We're all being put in these boxes. You're either this or that. You can't be both. So you're either all things Republican or all things Democrat. If you're pro-life, you must be anti-women's rights. If you're pro-police, then you're racist. It's like these polar opposites with this dark line in between. You're not allowed to be both. You're either this or that. But that is not our creator's heart. Our creator is a diverse and dynamic creator. And so in the life of Jesus, who came to, to model for us what it is to, to look like and, and to live, we see that Jesus was not either or. Jesus was and. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to be and people. Even in his divine makeup, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so we're in this series that's just titled Jesus. And our goal is to just press in to come to know him more. To ask ourselves, do I really know Jesus in truth and in fullness so that I am reflecting him into this world. And so last week we talked about how Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. And as we started, we just sort of established that there are some elements of who Jesus is that are just a little bit more complex. They're not, they're not as natural for us to, to understand. And so the incarnation of Jesus is another one of those things that he was fully God and fully man. Fully human, he felt what we feel. He was tempted as we were tempted. But he also had the fullness of God's heart within him. And so he had the full essence of the divine and the full essence of humanity, a human body, a human mind, human emotions, a human will. His human mind was not replaced with the divine mind. And his human heart was not replaced 
with the divine heart. He was fully God and fully man in all ways. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So it's as fully God and fully man that Jesus came to model for us what it looks like to live in a new humanity. One that is marked by God's divine heart. And so in Jesus dwelt the fullness of God, which means he wasn't either or, but he was and. He was justice and mercy. He wasn't just gentle, he was bold. He wasn't just serious, he was playful. And he wasn't just task-oriented, making his way to the cross to get things done. He was radically relational. Jesus embodied a divine personality, a divine heart, and a divine mind. And so he shows us what it looks like to be and people. It's through Jesus that we learn how to be the body of Christ. See, together, the church is the body of Christ, meaning we are the reincarnation of Christ in body to reflect him to the world, which means we have to learn how to reflect Jesus' heart in a healthy way. And so today, we're going to look at one of the and qualities of Jesus, one that is that is really lost in our world, that the world needs the church to, to embrace it and embody it in a healthy way. We're going to look at what it means to be people of truth and love. See, right now in our world, those two things are not allowed to go together. If I were to speak truth to you in, on a difficult subject you will accuse me of not showing you love. The, the church has been put in this corner and its voice has been taken away because when we speak truth, it doesn't make people feel good. And for the world, love is all about feelings. Not just, not just acceptance, but agreement and approval. See, we're not allowed to disagree with anybody. We're called to, to smile and empower whatever it is that they feel deeply about. And yet if you pick up your Bible and you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus modeled a very different kind of love. A love that confronted in truth was compelled by truth, motivated by truth. And so as I was preparing for this message, I spent a lot of times reading through the Gospels, through these accounts of Jesus interacting with people, approaching people. And for whatever reason, I just kept getting drawn to the book of John. And so I just read through the book of John a few times. And something that stood out to me 
was the frequency with which Jesus would begin what he was about to say with these words. I tell you the truth. See, truth mattered to Jesus. Truth was at the foundation of Jesus' mission on this earth. I want to give you a challenge this week. Read through the book of John with a highlighter. And every time you see Jesus use those words, highlight it. If you normally highlight, pick a different color. So that the frequency of these words jumps out at you. That you see that truth mattered to Jesus. Jesus was not afraid of the truth. Because he knew that it was the truth that would set people free. He says in John 8, 32, If you hear my voice and abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will give you freedom. See, truth led people to freedom and hope and peace that they were desperately longing for. It was lies that had led them astray. And so Jesus comes to to speak truth, not to condemn and to judge, but to liberate and to give freedom. He was inviting them out of their current life and into a new one. And and this, this issue has to go in order to get there. So Jesus had no problem talking about it because he knew what was in store for them. In John 3, 16 through 17, Jesus says, For God expressed his love for the world this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Jesus says, here's the point. God didn't send his son into the world to judge it. Instead, he is here to rescue a world headed toward certain destruction. Jesus came to shine light into the darkness, to speak truth over the lies. And so the truth that offended was doing the work it was intended to do. And yet it's not new for us today that people don't want to hear truth. It's always been that way. In fact, Jesus addresses the religious leaders multiple times about their inability to embrace his truth because they cared more about what the world thought of them than what God did. In John 5, he says, that's why it's so hard to see how true faith is even possible for you. You are consumed by the approval of other men, longing to look good in their eyes, and yet you disregard the approval of the one true God. And even worse, there were some religious leaders that did embrace this truth. But they were too concerned about approval to actually admit it. John 12, 41 and 43, John records, yet many leaders secretly believed in him but would not declare their faith because the Pharisees continued their threats to expel all his followers from the synagogue. Here's why. 
They loved to please men more than they desired to glorify God. They cared more about what was happening here, their safety here, opinions here, than about honoring and glorifying the one true God. And yet Jesus cared only for the Father's will. In John 5.30, he says, I'm committed to pursuing God's agenda and not my own. See, we see here again that, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In his humanness, in his human mind, and his human heart, he had his own thoughts on how things should maybe go. But he submitted them completely to the Father's will. And we see Jesus do this again the night before he's crucified. In the garden, as he's crying out, Father, if there's any other way, can we take it? But not my will, yours be done. Jesus was sold out for God's mission. He was all about God's agenda, and God's agenda was to bring truth into this world so that people would be set free and liberated from the lies that had them bound. He spoke this truth because he loved them so much. And so this morning, I just want to look at two accounts where we see Jesus model what it looks like to approach somebody in truth and love. The first one is a woman that Jesus encounters at a well. Jesus intentionally sought this woman out to have this interaction with her. And it is the hottest point of the day. And so we can assume that this was not a lengthy conversation. Jesus got to the point. He comes to this woman, and the first thing he asks is, is if she will get him some water. And this, this in and of itself speaks volumes, because it was countercultural for Jesus to be speaking to her at all, both as a woman and as a Samaritan. So the fact that he even gave her the time of day made her feel human and seen and accepted it was a kindness she was not familiar with. And then he goes on to tell her that he's got this life for her. A life where she won't be thirsty. Where she won't be longing and desperate. And so she, she says to him, John 4, 15 and 16, the woman said, Please, sir, give me some of this water so I'll never be thirsty and never again have to make the trip to this well. See, her thirst was not just physical, but it was emotional and it was spiritual. Because of her, her life choices, because of the sin in her life, she had been marked. All the other women went to get water in early morning, in the cool of the day, but she wasn't allowed to go then. She'd been ostracized from community. So she thirsted to, 
to not have to go at the middle of the day, to not be set apart, to not be broken off from community, to be seen and known and loved. And Jesus offers this to her, and she says, please, give me this water. Because people are desperate. People who are not living in God's truth are desperate because that's not how they were intended to live. But listen to what Jesus says to her. He says, then bring your husband to me. And we're just going to stop here for a second. You know that feeling where somebody calls you out on something, that, like, a, like a secret, and your whole body gets hot, and your face flushes, and your heart starts racing? It feels like there's a spotlight on you, and the whole world is looking in on your greatest mistake? That's what this, this woman was feeling. Here she was starting to get, get her hopes up of, the, of this acceptance. And this guy just comes and calls her out. And so stammering, she says, uh, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus gets even more direct. And he says, technically, you're telling the truth. But you have had five husbands and are currently living with a man you are not married to. See, unlike the version of Jesus that our world wants us to embody, the Jesus of the Bible was not afraid to call out sin, was not afraid to get direct, because he knew that it was her sinful choices that was causing her this pain, causing her to be isolated, causing her to thirst so deeply and so for Jesus, why would he not go right after it? If his heart for her is freedom, this is the thing we have to get out of the way. Jesus was direct because he loved her. We see it again in this account where the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. The Pharisees were trying to, trying to get Jesus, to catch him. That, that through his ministry, he was actually breaking their law. But see, Jesus, he flips the tables over again, and he shows them how the law and love go together. And so the first thing he does is he, he kind of turns, turns it on to these men and, and basically says, the first one of you who has no sin can throw the first stone. And one by one, they walk away. So Jesus is extending this, this love and this grace to this woman. But take note, in this moment, we've got Jesus, we've got the religious leaders, we've got the woman, guaranteed there's some sort of crowd. Nobody questioned the fact that she was sinning. Matter of fact, she was sinning. Her behavior and her choices was a sin. Everybody in that moment knew it. It was not downplayed. It wasn't covered up. It wasn't made okay. And so these men walk away, and Jesus approaches this woman, and he doesn't say to her, 
Honey, don't let their words hurt you. Those guys are just jerks. Jesus speaks truth. He says, dear woman, where is everyone? Are we alone? Did no one step forward and condemn you? She replied, Lord, no one has condemned me. And Jesus says to her, well, I do not condemn you either. All I ask is that you go and from now on avoid the sin that plagues you. Jesus did not avoid calling out her sin. In fact, he tells her to flee from it. Get out of that. But he doesn't say it to condemn her. He doesn't say it to judge her. He says it to invite her and to liberate her so that she can experience freedom. John 12, 47 and 48, Jesus says, if anyone listening to my teaching chooses to ignore it, then so be it. I have come to liberate the world, not to judge it. However, those who reject me and my teachings will be judged. In the last day, my words will be their judge. Jesus spoke truth to this woman, pointed out her sin, called it out so that she could experience freedom, so that she would not someday be held and judged by them. He spoke the truth to invite her out of them. In one breath, he says, neither do I condemn you. And in the next, go and sin no more. And this is where we see this this beautiful kind of counterintuitive conjunction of truth and love, a passion for justice and a commitment to mercy. He extends to this woman truth and grace. See, our love for people sometimes needs to be expressed in truth. If I have a friend who who is making some poor choices or is entertaining some, some negative thinking in their life, I'm going to point it out so that they don't start going down a bad path. Or if somebody comes into my office and is just talking about how they're just wrestling spiritually, we're gonna talk about the areas in their life that need to be broken. Or if a young person is wrestling with their identity, I'm going to refuse to make agreement with the lies of the enemy. And instead, I'm going to battle for them by speaking God's truth of who he is, of who they are, and of his design so that they will not continue to be bound by this lie, but that the truth will set them free. But in all of these things, I have to be rooted in a deep love for them. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that that we cannot be people who are motivated for people to know truth. We have to be motivated for them to know Jesus. Jesus who was both truth and love. Jesus spoke truth boldly because his love for people was true 
and genuine. He approached them in in compassion and love, but when he did, he was direct and honest. Because it simply mattered too much to him for people to experience freedom and liberation, to to be broken out of the pain and the destruction in their lives. So Jesus spoke truth. And yet for us, it's almost as though pointing out someone's sin has become a sin in and of itself because it it devalues them or it compromises my love for them. And yet Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to speak truth to people. And if our job as the body of Christ is to reflect Jesus to this world, then we have to respond the same way. And so as I prayed over this message, and I got, I got this far, I just asked God, Why is it that when Jesus spoke truth to people, they experienced freedom? They were liberated. Why is it that now when we, the body of Christ, speak truth to people, it's violent and negative and defensive? And God answered me very clearly. And he simply said, It's because you don't truly love people. Which is extremely sobering and humbling. But church, do we love the world? Do we love the people who think so very differently than us? Who have different life choices than us? Are we desperate for them to be freed from the lies that have them bound? Are we desperate for for people to come to know Jesus? Or do we really just want them to know our truth? And I'm not talking about your spouse or your friends. I'm talking about those people. The people who who are just completely other than us. Those, Those people that we seem to say, put them to the side because there's no hope there. Do we love people? Because our spoken truth means absolutely nothing if it is not rooted in love. I'm going to read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm I'm reading from the Passion Translation just because it, it reads so beautifully on this passage. It says, If I were to speak with eloquence in earth's many languages and in the heavenly tongues of angels, yet I didn't express myself with love, my words would be reduced to the hollow sound of nothing more than a clanging cymbal. 
if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest gift of faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. If I were to be so generous as to give away everything I own to feed the poor and to offer my body to be burned as a martyr, without the pure motive of love, I would gain nothing of value. Love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessings come to someone else. Love does not brag about one's achievements nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame or disrespect or self, selfish, selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Love never stops loving. It extends beyond the gift of prophecy, which eventually fades away. It is more enduring than tongues which will one day fall silent. Love remains long after words of knowledge are forgotten. Our present knowledge and our prophecies are but partial. But when love's perfection arrives, the partial will fade away. Funny thing is, this scripture was read at my husband and I's wedding. We each got tattoos on our honeymoon with this scripture. Because clearly this is how I'm to love my spouse. But this is how I'm called to love everybody. All of God's creation. And so church, I exhort us to assess our hearts and our minds to repent of our pride and our arrogance for not seeking to love the way Jesus loved. Because the world is getting further and further from God's truth, it seems. There is no central truth anymore for the world. It's all about what my truth is. And it's celebrated, and it's applauded, and it's given a red carpet. But guys, are we mad about it? Or are we sad about it? Are we broken by it? Out of a deep love for people. Because we can read through these gospel accounts and we can see how frequently Jesus approached people in truth and love. And yet this is what he says to his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35. So I give you a new command, love each other deeply and fully. Remember the ways that I have loved you and demonstrate your love for others in those same ways. And everyone will know you as my followers if you demonstrate your love to others. We are called to demonstrate our love to the world 
the way Jesus loved. And Jesus modeled truth and love, which means we have to speak truth. But we can only speak truth if it is first rooted in deep, deep love. A love that comes from a place that's not our own. We cannot love this way in our humanness. Jesus loved this way because he was fully God and fully man. And so the only way for us to love this way is through the power of Jesus in us, which is why we have to come to know him and experience him and be changed by his love for us. Because when you are changed and impacted by Jesus' love for you, your love will spill over. You'll begin to have his mind and his heart for people. And when you do, when you genuinely love somebody, you can't help but speak the truth because you see what it's doing to their lives and you desperately want them to be liberated. Jesus came and he spoke truth, not to judge and not to condemn, but to liberate. So so we as the body of Christ, guys, we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to be embodying him in fullness and in truth because that is where the power is. And if we don't know him in truth and in fullness, the world will define him for us. But they will always pick that one quality that furthers their agenda. For so long, the church has been held to this sort of gentle Jesus expectation. Jesus was all about love and peacekeeping. He wouldn't confront anyone. He wouldn't make anybody feel bad. But now when people want to go out and riot, they're pointing to the Jesus that flips tables in the temple. The world will pick that quality that furthers their personal agenda, but Jesus is not either or. Jesus is and. He is all things. He is peace and confrontation. He is truth and love. And so we need him. We need to experience him. John writes again in a different letter in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So we have to come to experience Jesus' love for us. That we may then extend that love through truth to the lost and broken world. So I asked the band to start with this hymn. And so I just ask that you sit and receive and think about this Jesus. And then they'll move into our closing song and I just invite you to stand up.